back to Acts chapter 11 to start. Oh, golly. All right. I'm good. All right. Acts chapter 11. Yes. Yes. Not that I was distracted suddenly. Um, Heavenly Father, I pray that you'd be with me. Help me to uh, be faithful. Uh, Lord God, I pray that um, this would be a time where you speak in a way that I don't expect, uh, despite me and despite my, my shortfall, uh, despite my uh, misdirection and confusion sometimes. Um, I pray that you would uh, just give me some, some wisdom and give me some grace and some peace as I, uh, as I bring us into the scriptures today. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, so... Also, please be with the Durgas who are all sick. Bless them, keep them, bring them health again uh, in this inauspicious start to the morning. Uh, pray for them. Uh, and especially I pray that this, this moment of, of forgetfulness, uncharacteristic forgetfulness, Lord God, that it would be a, a time where uh, it cements in people's mind the need to pray for the Durgas. Um, and and this time of illness and stress and everything else, Lord God, I I pray that that my uh, embarrassment would serve to bring people to prayer after they walk out the door today. Um, in Christ's name, Amen. So uh, at the beginning of the summer, I uh, went through my library and I eliminated a ton of books. Or actually, I didn't eliminate. Because I find it utterly impossible to get rid of books. And so what I did was I sorted, um, I sorted and shifted. And like in the hallway outside my office, I put out five long tables and I piled books up. And I got bins and there were things I said, I need that on my shelf. I don't want to get rid of that. I want to donate that. And I did donate some books, so don't look at me like that. Uh, and all of those books, like, like, I, I realized uh, just this morning, I went to look for church growth and development books. And as it turns out, I tossed almost all of them in bins to get rid of or put away. It's weird because there is an enormous industry in America built around trying to get churches to not die. Right? Because across the country, the church is like... Like membership and attendance and everything else, like it's not looking great. And there's a cultural shift happening and there's all this stuff. And people have written book after book after book. Um, and I, I just grabbed a handful off my shelf. I still have a bunch of them there. Um, this is, uh, I went to see this guy speak and he talked about intergenerational problems in church and why older people cannot get along with younger people. Isn't that weird? And like this whole book is about how to get people to all get along in church. Um, and if I recall correctly, there is not a chapter in this book on how to pray together on a regular basis for healing or unity or anything else. Like, I think it's touched on, but there isn't like a whole chapter on it. Isn't that kind of weird? Um, breakout churches looks at qualities of churches that are very effective. And if I remember right now, I read this a while ago, and it's actually upside down in the dust jacket. Prayer is not a prominently featured thing. Isn't that weird? They talk about management structure, small groups, all kinds of other stuff. But church development, like classes and courses and approaches, are astonishingly practical. Um, becoming a healthy church, 10 traits of vital ministry. 
prayer. Isn't that a weird thing? Like, because if I had to write a book that said, guys, if you want your church to succeed, here are the, like, three most important things. Number one, take God at his word and take him seriously and live as though it's true. This means you will pray. And it also means that you will spend a whole lot of time reading the scriptures and trying to figure out how to apply it in your everyday lives. That's a short book. You all with me? Like a really short book. You could not write doing church as a team, which is kind of interesting. I had to write a paper on it in seminary, but you couldn't write that with these things. Instead, it's management application. Church as a team sport. Again, sports management and coaching applied to making your church not die. Guess what prayer is not included? Or guess what isn't included? Prayer, right? Like, like it is weird how little time is devoted in things like developing the leader within you. Not a fan of John Maxwell, one of the best-selling, like, Christian pastor reading authors ever. But he doesn't say, pastor, spend the first hour of your morning praying for your people. Not at once. Isn't that weird? And I'm not saying that all of these guys are awful. I'm not saying the best, only the best on leadership, which is a collection of articles written by guys about how to be a good leader, pastor. I'm not saying it's awful. But what I am saying is, is that we have built a practical how-to component for operating the body of Christ that is us. And the reality is, you can give me a how-to manual on how to make a person be alive, and I can stitch them together, and I can put them up on my roof and shout, it's alive, and everything else. But it ain't going to be alive unless it's got breath in its body, unless it's got that spark, right? Like there is something more to the equation. And that is what ultimately is drowning the church today. We're going to be in Acts 11, we're going to be, or Acts 13. We're going to start in 11, though, because we're looking at the church in Antioch. And the church in Antioch is mentioned in 11, And then there's a big diversion for Peter getting arrested and John being killed. And then he comes back to Antioch. And it's a big deal, and I'll explain why in a minute. By the way, this is Moses on management. Guess what? No prayer. No study scriptures. No pour yourself into what God calls you to be. Nothing. So... We're going to be looking at Acts. And by the way, the main point today, I have to use my outline, which I'm not used to. I'm used to being able to flip past my slides. Um, God's movements in Acts, as well in all, as like all of church history, right? Like when you see God act in big, amazing, huge ways, it is always predicated on an enormous amount of prayer. It is not management. It is not a new idea. It is not a different way of approaching the Gospels. It is not a clever way of doing things. It is prayer over and over and over again. Um, Every great revival. I read a book uh, uh, surveying all of the revivals that have happened since the book of Acts. It was written by a guy named Elmer Towns. Um, I think I read it like 15 years ago. And the one thing he says over and over again is prayer. Prayer, prayer, prayer. Every time, it's prayer. Um, So we're going to be in Acts 11, uh, just for a minute. I'm going to read through it quick, um, because we preached on this last year, right? Um, 
Now, those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch. So you guys remember Stephen was martyred, and like the church was scattered by a guy named Paul, Saul, right? Um, By the way, there's a misconception that God renamed him. Paul and Saul are like variants on the same name between like, you know, Greek and Hebrew or something like that. So like... That's it. Okay, so it's going to go back and forth. It's nothing. Just understand Paul and Saul are the same person. Uh, So spreading the word only amongst the Jews, meaning all of these people were chased out and they preached the gospel to Jewish people. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. Real quick side note, who is this Barnabas guy? Barnabas, we met earlier, when Saul, Paul, was first preaching all over the place, and folks were about to kill him. And, like, Barnabas is the guy who sort of brings Paul into the church in Jerusalem and then puts him on a one-way bus out of town to save his life. All right, get out of here, go home. And he goes to Tarsus, right? Um, And so Barnabas is an important character, and we've seen him a few times, and he becomes a prominent character going forward. Um, When he arrived and saw what the grace of God had done, he was glad and encouraged them to all remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, And a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. By the way, Antioch and Tarsus are kind of close together on a map. I had a cool slide. And Jess was watching me create big elaborate like arrows and dots and the word Antioch. It really wasn't that elaborate. But like there should be a map there. But they are right next to each other. So he's like, hey. Paul's just down the road. Let me hop over there, take a couple-day trip, and I'll come back, and I'll have this Paul guy. Um, This is about 10 years after Paul went back to Tarsus. Okay, so Paul has disappeared from the story for about a decade. Barnabas brings him back. Um, Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. During this time, some of the prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them was named Agabus, whose name I pronounced wrong last time, and I'm doing it again. Uh, One of them named Abacus stood up. And through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, as each one was able, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. This they did, sending their gifts to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. So, um, if you're following along on your outline, right? Right. The main thing is prayer. But this church in Antioch, they're already evangelizing, right? They are the first church recorded in Acts reaching out to Gentiles in their own community, right? These guys set up shop. They start converting Jewish people. And then they're like, let's go talk to the Gentiles, 
right? Let's go talk to these lost people, and we'll bring them in. And a lot of them were probably God-fearers, and some of them were pagans, but all of these folks get brought into the gospel because it's important to them. You know what's weird? I've noticed um, I have to set a reminder to do certain things every day, right? I've got to set a reminder to work out. I've got to set a reminder to get up, to work a certain number of hours on different projects, to remember to go to meetings or make phone calls or whatever. I've got to set reminders for all kinds of stuff. I never have to set a reminder to eat ice cream in the afternoon. Isn't that weird? You know why? Because I like ice cream. Nobody has to tell me about it because I am passionate about ice cream. Nobody has to tell me to check my wife out. Right? I have to have a little reminder or to-do list item. Look at how pretty your wife is today. Comment on it. Tell her. You know why? Kind of enjoy it. Right? The church in Antioch is passionate about a certain thing, and that is living out the gospel in a very specific way and through evangelism and missions and then through relief missions exemplifying Christ. They are Christ-like in who they are, and they're passionate about it, and it's kind of neat. And there isn't a point where somebody comes along and says, hey, you guys should do this. Instead, it's, hey, there's going to be a famine, and they get together and they're like, all right, well, guys, let's start pitching in so we can buy food for these guys. They're our brothers. We're going to feed them. Isn't that weird? It is weird. Nobody had a fundraiser, right? Nobody uh, had a silent auction. They didn't you know, raffle off a Creedmoor or something or other. I don't know anything about guns. Um, There was none of that. They just did it because that's what they do. Because that's who they are. By natural benefit of being who they are, they act a certain way. No management textbook, no 10 principles, no small groups, no exploratory committee, no middle management, none of that. They went out and did it. So, uh, let me make sure I'm not. All right. Uh, We're going to jump ahead. So, Peter gets arrested. Peter escapes from jail. Peter leaves. And then we pick up in 13. Actually, we're going to back up just a tiny bit. We're going to do a little bit of 12. So, find it in your Bible so you're following along. By the way, um, I know I put verses on the screen every day. The first best noise I hear on Sunday morning is when Yancey cries during service or fusses or says stuff, right? That will always be like the ice cream man bell to me. The second is when I hear pages turning. You all with me? Um, Because, like, the scriptures are it. Like, this is how we hear and know God. This is a part of who we are as the churches. We pour ourselves into this stuff. But, um, so, immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down. We talked about this last week. And he was eaten by worms and died. But, tapeworms probably, but the word of God continued to spread and flourish when Barnabas and Saul finished their mission. They returned from Jerusalem, taking with them John, also called Mark. Now, if you were paying attention last week, um, there's a weird little thing I have never noticed before. When Peter escaped from jail and went to the house, it was... The house of the mother of a guy named John called Mark, which is the guy that 
Barnabas and Saul are taking with them, which means that there's at least an outside possibility that Barnabas and Saul were there when Peter showed up. Isn't that kind of neat? Just a weird little tidbit. Going from there, so Barnabas and Saul have gone off and they've done their mission work and they have returned from Jerusalem and they're in the church with this new guy, John Mark, who ends up being a controversial figure later, but uh, we're not going to get into that today. I think, though not positive, there is the outside chance that he is actually the guy who penned the book of Mark. Kind of neat, huh? Uh, Now, in the church at Antioch, There were prophets and teachers. Now, prophets and teachers here, there are a couple of ways to read this. It could mean these guys were prophets and these guys were teachers, and there's all kinds of language discussion and argument um, about which word means what and which guys might have been teachers and which guys might have been prophets. A more natural reading of this is these guys were all both teachers and prophets, and I'll tell you why. Um, There were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, and we already know who this Barnabas guy is. He's been hanging out there teaching. Uh, Simeon called uh, Niger, which in Latin means black, and like, at least an outside possibility that, like, he was a black guy, right? Uh, There's some argument that Simeon, well, anyway, um, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, meaning Herod Antipas, not the Herod we talked about last week, and Saul. The brought up with, the phrase there, the word, literally means was suckled with, meaning like from very young they were friends. Um, I don't know why they didn't translate it word for word. Uh, So we have these guys. The first one is Barnabas and the last one is Saul. Why do I point that out? Because probably teachers and prophets... All of them, because Barnabas and Saul are the first and last, and we know they both taught, and we know they both kind of did some prophecy stuff. So all of them are probably both teachers and prophets. Why does it matter? These are the leaders of the church, right? They are people who speak on God's behalf. They are not fortune tellers. Sometimes we think of prophecy as fortune telling, right? But that's not all of what prophecy is. Sometimes God tells of the future or what have you through prophets more often than not. He says things like, stop being dumb, get your act together, right? I mean, an awful lot. Like 99% of what the prophets do is get your act together, right? So these guys taught, and they called out sin, and they pointed like people to God. Um, While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. We're going to pause here. While they were worshiping and fasting, this might be referring to those five guys. In all likelihood, it's not. In all likelihood, it's referring to the whole church. So what's the whole church doing? They're fasting and they're worshiping. Why would you fast? Well, there's the outside chance this is a Jewish fast, but it probably isn't. Because like that sort of thing was beginning to fall out of favor in the early church pretty early on. Um, Though some early churches did observe it, more likely they were fasting because it was intense, focused, seeking God. Right? They were very dug in and looking for God to do something. I I, uh, would not speak of my own fasting. That would be not a good thing. The guys I know who fast regularly, if they need an answer or if they feel something isn't right, they will stop eating. And they will pray and they will look for God to answer. 
or if they're trying to accomplish something or praying on someone's behalf, they will fast and pray because like by not eating, we sort of put to death our flesh and we focus on God alone, right? Um, and, and it is kind of amazing how fasting changes the way we pray and think and preach. Um, it is an outstanding thing. Um, but they're fasting and they're praying, so they're looking for God to do something big. Why? I have no idea. But it doesn't sound like it was that unusual, does it? Like the early church prayed a lot. In fact, actually, in the previous story, when Peter is in jail, what did the early church do? They prayed. Um, when Peter is called to Caesarea by the sea, this was last year, and we have the Gentiles meeting, like, like receiving the gospel. For the first time, it was because the Gentiles were praying, and Peter was praying, and God connected them. Every time you see anything happen, they're praying, and God moves. That is an easy thing to miss, and it's an easy thing to miss when we look at this and we say, all right, so what sort of principle can I apply to how I'm going to run our small groups this week or which guy I should hire to be our pastor or whatever, like all of that stuff. Like if you start mining the scripture for things like that and ignore what's really happening, you can get lost. And you know why you get lost? Because you lose the fact that it is God that is making this thing happen, right? What are they doing? They're praying and they're fasting. And the Holy Spirit talks to them and says, set these guys apart for the work I have set them apart for. Uh, If you want to stick your finger in the book there and leaf back to Acts chapter 9. Let's see if I can actually find it. This is right before the Cornelius house thing, which is in Acts chapter 10. Oh, please find it, Eric. Uh, All right, so Saul's conversion in chapter 9. Saul is on his way to Damascus to straight up kill the Christians there. And he's struck blind, and he meets Jesus on the road. He sees the risen Lord and all that. He converts, but he's still blind. And um, in Damascus, this is verse 10, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision. Ananias, yes, Lord, he answered. And the Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In, for he is praying. By the way, in a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with the authority of the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. So Ananias says, are you sure? (laughs) Do you really want me to do this? But the Lord said to Ananias, go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings. And to the people of Israel, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. That was ten years earlier. God has put a call on Saul's life, and Saul then hangs out for a decade. Isn't that wonderful? I don't know about you guys, but I don't care how. I want it now, right? I don't like waiting. I don't like learning. I don't like growing. I don't like any of that stuff. I want a book that gives me instructions so I can pick it up and say, time to pastor, time to do this, time to do that. I'm on it, right? But God does things his way. 
And the only way it works for us to walk with him and hear him and know him is, like, to begin with prayer. To begin by consuming and soaking in his word and hearing what he has to say to us and, like, like drawing it into ourselves. The Spirit's action, this is uh, D on uh, this uh, verse on the outline, right? The Spirit's action is specifically to give them direction. So the Holy Spirit comes in, they're praying and fasting, and that's what prompted the Spirit to speak. And now they, the Spirit's giving them direction. This is a recurring pattern in Paul's work, and it has already been seen in Acts. What does this mean? It means that Paul would go one way and be like, all right, we're going to go to this city over here in Persia, and we're going to preach the gospel. And the Spirit would be like, yeah, I don't think so. So they go somewhere else. They go, all right, well, we'll go over here. No, 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 that's not where you're going. They just wander back and forth forever until the Spirit said, all right, go to Greece. And they'd go to Greece. And the Spirit would tell them, hey, guys, time to pack up and get out of here. And they'd get up and leave and escape moments before disaster struck. And it is over and over and over again. I've talked to people in my life. I actually knew this gal in college um, who lamented the fact that God never spoke to her and she never experienced him. And I don't know what the heck was wrong with me, but I never asked, how much do you pray? It's weird. It's weird how much more I encounter God when I talk to him. It's weird how much more my wife wants to spend time with me when I talk to her. It's weird how much happier my children are when I spend time talking to them. Not the in trouble kind of talking. Prayer's relationship with God and the church, the body of Christ, is just a sewed-together cadaver until the Spirit fills it and gives it life. Everybody still awake? Um, so they receive this direction. Quiet, Titus. Uh, anybody except Titus still awake? So, after they had fasted and prayed, they placed hands on them and sent them off. So the Holy Spirit gives them a direction, and they follow that up by... Fasting and praying. Really? Thought we like checked that box, right? Except that's not how they saw it. That's not the way they perceived God's action in their lives. They said, oh, it's time to do this thing. Well, we better pray about it before we go launching. Another thing I want to point out that is a big, actually, it'll probably be in the next section. So they like prayer and fasting, prayer, Focus on God, prayer, consume the word. Um, I, I found a great quote this morning from Spurgeon. Not Spurgeon the cat. Uh, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, I think that's his name. I would rather teach one man to pray than ten men to preach. The problem is that the world of the church today, everybody has a megaphone. Isn't it true? Everybody's got a megaphone. Everybody can holler from the mountaintops. And Everybody thinks that their job is to preach, but a lot of times, and I'm guilty of this too, we speak first and never ask, right? I can tell you what's wrong with the country right now. Guess what? Nothing is wrong. The world's great, Titus. You be respectful. I know, no asides to my kids. i got to be on this. Um, so this is the text. This is what we have got. What is in this? Because it's a very small amount of text. It looks like what is in there. Well, first off, 
Um, this, the reason we started on Acts is because we were doing a series talking about what the church is and what it looks like and how it is, right? How do we be the body of Christ? And I am here to tell you that everybody and their brother has a suggestion. And I got another 10-gallon, 20, I don't know, how big are those totes? Like 20 gallons? I got like a 20-gallon tote downstairs or, or whatever that is full of books with ink spilled all over them telling you how to be the most effective church and grow to be a mega church and get a gold-plated hot tub baptismal for your pastor and everything else. And ain't a one of them, for the most part, that says, spend more time praying than you do anything else. Weird, isn't it? None of them point to the disciples and how the disciples said, yeah, we have a whole lot of work to do, but like our primary job needs to be praying and studying the scriptures, and that's what we're going to do. And we're going to teach. And like, but it'll tell you, oh, well, you need to manage this way. You need to organize this way. You need to cast vision and a bunch of other nonsense. Prayer is what the church looked like. So our big principles here, if you're following along on the page, God moved in response to the church praying, and it has happened over and over and over and over and over again. The Second Great Awakening, which is actually the Church of God, came out of the Second Great Awakening. It started in England when a prominent publisher published like a pamphlet all, and spread it all over England calling people to pray. And there were a couple of guys who read it, and they're like, we're going to pray about God moving in our world. And they prayed about it every day. And they got other people to pray about it. And it launched the Second Great Awakening. They didn't go out and preach. They didn't go out and plant churches. They didn't go out and do any of that stuff. They started by praying. One of the folks who was converted in that, and I actually came to this because I thought, oh, this is a really interesting thing. And as I was reading and praying and studying, I got this. Um, So John Sweatcliffe, Sweatcliffe, And Andrew Fuller were those two guys. They prayed, and during the Second Great Awakening, there was a guy named Samuel Mills who was 12 years old, and he like like became a believer then, and he like went to seminary and studied, and he gathered up a bunch of these guys, and he was like, there are people in Asia who are dying without hearing the gospel, and we just spread the gospel there, and they all started meeting together and praying, and they met together and prayed and prayed together and met and all of this, and then one day. There's this huge storm that hits while they're out in the field praying, and they went and hid behind a haystack as the storm went over, right? And the storm hit and ended like that. And they were all shocked, and they're like, wow, this is weird. We're in this haystack, and we're praying, we're doing all this. And they decide, we are going to be the haystack prayer group. And American foreign missions grew out of those guys because they were donating money, because they were going places. Because they were doing stuff. Because, no, what did they do? Prayed. It is a very frustrating thing in the world. Like, and I know this because I'm a doer, right? I am a ready, fire, aim guy. You give me an objective, I'm going to do it wrong 12 times before I start praying about it. I learned to fix cars in college by buying a book and taking stuff apart. And then finding people to help me put it back together and throwing away the extra parts, right? Because that's how you learn stuff. I want to read things. But in reality, prayer is not a thing that I learn by reading books. So God's calling was already in motion in this church. Do you all get that? 
Antioch is already doing these things. His calling is already happening, but it's the prayer on top of the calling that made things move. And I suspect part of what they're praying about is, how do we spread the gospel? How do we do your work, Lord? And God says, all right, these two guys, send them. But they were already doing this stuff. The fact of the matter is that we pray and we act on the passion that's in us. Why? Because I think passion sometimes is prompted by the Spirit. That's fair enough. Jeremy, who is not here today, and so I'm going to pick on him, one of the things that he is passionate about is ministering to kids from non-intact homes, right? Jeremy grew up in kind of a, like his dad wasn't around, and he had a lot of personal struggle, and there was some chaos in his life. And Brooke picked that guy up and took care of him, even though he was goofy as heck. I wasn't here, but I know him now. Is that accurate? Even though sometimes he was a mess and a headache and weird and obnoxious. And he took care of him. And eventually Jeremy met Jesus. And now Jeremy is back here because he didn't want to come back, but God dragged him back here. And here he is. And what's he passionate about? Reaching people like him that he knows need Jesus. And so, like, I've heard, like, oh, man, the youth group at Big Sandy is, like, chaotic. You know why it's chaotic? Because it's lost kids. Because Jeremy's passion, his drive, is to reach kids who are dying in their hearts and their minds and their souls because, like, they need the gospel that bad. It's true, isn't it? And by the way, I applaud you guys that you support what they do, that you put up with the messes. And I know there are messes. Um, Everything else, that is amazing because that is what the Holy Spirit has wrought in him. And I believe in you guys. And that is a seed that was planted a decade ago. I don't know, how old is Jeremy? Like 30 years ago? Something like that? Um. So God's calling is already in motion, and they continued to pray about the things they were doing, what they were passionate about. The whole account is soaked in prayer. That's C under principles. Um, this is also a recurring theme throughout the book of Acts. They're always going back to prayer. They're always going back to prayer. Um, I was reading this book by Francis Chan, the only church growth book I remember ever reading that is specifically a church book that talks about prayer more than anything else. And in an early chapter, he says, if you were stuck on a desert island with only the Bible and you were to read it and then show up in America, would America look like the church? Would the American church look like the church in the Bible? And if it doesn't, what do you need to do? Wow. That's scary, ain't it? Well, the church prayed constantly. The church gathered as a body to pray. I, part of the reason I'm going longer, and I know I am, and I... I'm trying to do what I think God wants me to do. That's the only thing I can say is because I'm praying longer, right? Because we need to pray together. It doesn't need to be a three-minute thing that we toss out and throw away. We've got to pray together. This is what it means to be the body of Christ in Acts. This is what it means for us. Um, The other thing that I think is really important that's easy to miss, the church is the ones doing this. Do you get me? The church is the ones doing this. There are people who will say, I prayed and this is what God wants me to do. And you know who it's coming from? Them. Not the church. Not the community. There's no fact check. There's no accountability. There's no nothing. It's just, this is what God wants me to do. And in reality, God works through his body, the church. We say, oh, well, but the church is screwed up. Then guess what our job is? To make it look like acts. Pray. Minister. Hold each other accountable, study the scriptures, meet, eat meals together in our homes, all of this stuff. Love each other when we're jerks. That's in there. I didn't make that up. 
So you still got to love me. So what do we do for application? Rebecca, you want to come up here? I'm going to have you do that. We're going to be doing communion today, and I'm going to get to this in a second, okay? Um, first and foremost, right, like our application today is pray, 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 right? We pray for direction. Where does God want us to go? What does he want us to do? We pray for the spirit to equip us, and we pray for the passion to do it, like a fire that comes from him. There are times I do ministry, and I don't want to. Um, but we pray for those things, for God to fill us with that, to see the need, to see his calling, to see our, our, our pull in that direction. Um, the church's action in prayer um, is confirmed and commissioned and supported through the church, right? This is a model that we're supposed to follow. So if you feel called, you pull the church into it and we work together. But our job is to do it. And finally, we have to ask with a willingness to act. I cannot tell you how many times in my life I have prayed, God, show me what I'm supposed to do right now. And I get to show me what I'm supposed to do right now. And I say, whoa, I didn't mean that. Right? Because prayer is dangerous. I'm here to tell you, if you stand close to the holy God who created the world and sacrificed his son to save you, that's serious. And that God might say, you need to love this person. He might say, you have to serve this person. He might say, you've got to confess these sins and make it right. It's scary. This morning is the first week of the month, and we do communion this week. And I'm here as we talk about communion, as we talk about the Lord's Supper, as we talk about being the body. We take communion in remembrance of what Christ did for us, in remembrance that through his Son, we're made whole. Like when we take communion, we remember Jesus' blood was poured out for us. Jesus' body was broken for us. And we are the body of Christ together, called to pray, called to minister, called to stand together, called to do his thing. And if we do not look like the church, as you take communion today, ask yourself, what do I need to do? How do I become like Christ? In the same way that our baptisms next week are symbolic of being buried and dead to our old life and brought to life in a new life in Christ. We take communion to remember that we're, we're made whole in Jesus. We're forgiven. And as you pray, as you, as you reflect, as you confess, as you do all the things we do with communion, like come forward as Terry releases you, I guess. Or I can do it. I was planning on doing it. Um, take the elements if you believe in Christ. Pray, God, what do you want from me? How do I be the body of Christ in this place?